it's depressing. So I started off as a techno optimist. You know, as I said, I thought that uh, you know the digital technology could enhance and improve the way democracy works. And starting in 1998, actually dedicated myself full time for a few years on this to say the key is to create the alternative that people might want because they're for the first time they're adopting digital platforms. And so either people was uh, an experiment in democracy. And, you know, we ended up reaching tens of millions of voters and tens of thousands of candidates and partnered with media companies to provide voter guides. As a nonprofit, it was good. But in terms of the idea of, you know, sh- bending the arc of, of how democracy works, you know, I think it's largely a failure. I think that, you know, the rise of Trump is a good example of was the fear that we had 20 years ago. Welcome to The Syndicate the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate. I'm your host, Matt Ward. And on this episode, like every episode, we have incredible investors, entrepreneurs, and game changers on. Today, we've got Michael Weixner. He's the... Weixner, Weixner. I'm terrible with names. He's he's at Rostrum Capital. They're investing in next generation platform companies. He's got a $60 million hedge fund actually shorting tech stocks. He's focused on cryptocurrencies. And then in the past, he's done quite a bit with connecting humanity, society, specifically with politics and keeping people informed. Thanks for coming, Michael. Hey, glad to be here. So you have an interesting story that seems like it has a lot of different twists and turns. Can you give me a little brief summary of what you do, what your deal? Yeah, you know, I've been fascinated since a young age. I mean, like a young age, like second grade on in terms of digital platforms. In the early 80s, I was on uh, bulletin board systems with a 300 baud modem. And, you know, that's manifests itself in different ways. You know, you mentioned the politics background and Seventh grade, I wrote this idea about technocracy, how computers can enable direct democracy. And I started something called E the People, which recently merged after 20 years with uh, the League of Women Voters. But, you know, along the way, I got a computer science degree at Princeton and a PhD in communication at Stanford and sort of broadened uh, more generally. You know, the, the, there's two components to, like, you know, whatever there's 30 years or more of thinking about this is one, that these new technologies are disruptive because there's new adoption and new and then the second part is that there's new behaviors that that are enabled and that transforms all areas of society and and business and so you know the you you mentioned some of the things i'm currently working on you know it as it disrupts it's you know some some big companies are are big losers also interesting are the new companies that can become really big really fast in in, in, in unprecedented ways and then the last part is you know what's on the next horizon, I think that cryptocurrencies are as or more exciting as the invention of the internet, you know, for, for these same reasons, but it's, it's all happening and, and happening faster. So that's, you know, that's a little bit about my uh, the 30 years in a nutshell. What are you excited about today? Crypto, cryptocurrencies, the ability to uh, embed incentives into new platforms and have financial value embedded is, is I think, is massively uh, disruptive and interesting. And I, and I, and I think that we're there's been talk about you know how much money is involved in Bitcoin and so on and so forth. That's really just you know scratching scratching the surface of like what's of what's possible and what's going to happen. We haven't seen the 
you know, the real world use cases that we're going to see in the next couple of years. Um, and I think they're going to spread faster and be more deeply embedded in society than, than other technologies, uh, than, than the adoption of other technologies. Do you think we'll see a similar trend to the dot-com bubble where you have to have a massive overcorrection or massive correction for true innovation? I mean, right now, ICOs are incredibly frothy. Right. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, everything that happened in 2017, all of the investments in 2017 are zero. Like, I, I, I'm not impressed by any of the existing sort of major ICO projects. But that, that, I, don't, I think that's kind of like neither here nor there. It's more like let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, in fact, you know, some of those may succeed, but it's going to be the third or fourth or fifth iteration of what they of what they do. And the, I, I don't see the sort of the investment that's coming in uh, slowing down. I think that the, but uh, and, I, and I think it's going to it's going to lead it's going to lead somewhere. And where do you think that somewhere is going to be? I know part of your thesis and a lot of your research now is going into the future of cryptocurrencies and what that looks like. Yes, I think that the you know as I said it's, it's so digital platforms you know from the past thesis is around creating things like marketplaces where you get buyers and sellers that can interact with each other and. It could be other things. It can be social networks. It can be you know, anywhere where the value comes from how users interact with each other. And I think that's what's been you know, disruptive for the last 20 years with digital platforms. And the difference with cryptocurrencies is you can embed the incentives. And that's really important because every new platform has this problem. If the value comes from how users interact, there's this question of like chicken and egg, like how do you get the whole thing started? And then also you know, the split of benefits between the participants and the platform operator. So if you take that over to, to, to cryptocurrencies, you have very interesting phenomena. So for example, take Twitter. Twitter is essentially a business which Trump provides content and Twitter adds ads and makes money. And so the question, you know, but the value of Twitter is not Twitter the company. It's all of the people and the views that they're sharing like amongst themselves. But there's a coordination problem if you want to get everybody off of Twitter on some other some other platform. And one of the ways you could do that would be to offer uh, Trump and, and Oprah and others, you know, and say, you know what, you can actually get the financial value that's generated from the platform if you get your followers to come. And of course, they, they would do that. And so the cryptocurrencies offer a path for people to launch new platforms and change the economics so the people who are adding the value get, you know, get, get, get the value from it. That's, you know, that, that's like one sort of hypothetical example. But, you know, I think in, you know, all, any platform that's out there from, from Uber to Amazon to Facebook to Twitter, uh, all of these things are going to have, uh, and, and new ones that, 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 that we haven't even thought of. Like I'm extreme, extremely excited about Internet of Things possibilities plus, plus crypto. Uh, there'll, there'll be new kinds of platforms that weren't even possible before, but existing and new platforms are going to be, you know, created in the next couple of years. Definitely agree. I would speculate on the timeline that a lot of the more consumer-facing ones are going to take longer than people think. We're still more or less building the the pipes, the tunnels, the roads, and it's very hard to have a city before you have the infrastructure in place. What investment focuses do you have, or are you guys currently investing? Uh, we are investing. You know, the you know we're in a little bit of a transition, but it's mostly from a uh, thesis perspective in trying to figure out how, what the right way to play it is. You know, the the old model was investing in equity of early stage startup companies. And now with ICOs, there's so much money coming in directly in quote unquote, the protocol level. And not, I'm not very uh, excited about investing in, IC, in other people's ICOs because the, the terms are just terrible. And so 
like there's there's a question of like being excited about what's happening versus like you know how do you do it as an investor. It sort of it definitely makes me feel sidelined from the most interesting projects that are that are out there. So frankly, that's made me turn back be more entrepreneurial. You know the the, the you know if I don't think the other projects that people are doing are right, and there's you know access to the cost of capital is really really low for doing things, then the answer is to go do something as opposed to being a provider of of capital. So that, that that's kind of that's kind of what I'm exploring now. I wanted to, you know, your your opinion, I think is generally accepted is this idea that, oh, we need to invest in the infrastructure before we can, we, you know, before a lot of the interesting projects will happen. I have a contrarian view on that. I think that if you break it, you own it. And so I don't think that it makes sense to, to, to necessarily invest in infrastructure projects for cryptocurrencies. I think it's better to make uh, massively scaling projects that require scaling and then those projects will be the ones that deserve the right to build to, to make the technology scale so take CryptoKitties for example CryptoKitties broke ethereum you know it was just it was the 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 network couldn't handle the amount of transactions but they crypto kitties was not they're they kind of like the early friendster they created an application that people want to use the game really lost a lot of potential because they weren't the ones that were able to figure out how to scale things. But for a brief moment in time, they may have been able to own that project. They could have, if they had known what to do, they would have been able to get Vitalik's attention. If they wanted to propose you know, changes to Ethereum, they might have been accepted, but they didn't do it. And so it's going to be a little fad the way that Friendster was. Later on, somebody could create something like CryptoKitties. It could take off. They solved the scaling problem. They'll become the Facebook. Facebook was not, Facebook was a mix of things, but part of it that I think is an unsung hero is that they solved incredible scaling problems for a massively interactive uh, project, and they did it seamlessly so they, because the users don't really care about that. They just want to get their friends update instantly. Facebook was able to deliver that, but they didn't wait for somebody else to figure out how to make a database to do that. They made that database themselves. Put devil's advocate, would you rather mine for gold or sell shovels? Well, I guess, you know, it's not, it's not an either or. I mean, it's, it's, there's a little bit of risk reward. You know, there have been plenty of billion dollar, you know, infrastructure projects, you know, you know, companies, so on and so forth, you know, that they get by by they get bought by Google or other tech companies or maybe go public, but there's a very small number of like Facebooks and and so on. So, you know, and I think that, you know, Facebook is probably worth more than all of those other ones combined. So I guess I'm big game hunting. So I think I, I'm looking for the breakout successes which have mass appeal. And then they're like Amazon, they're gonna figure out how to get you the boxes. Like Amazon started off and says, you need to get the box in two days. Well, yeah, that's really, really hard. You know, you could try and create a, you know, maybe you want to create a delivery company or maybe you just want to make a website that doesn't have a physical infrastructure. But again, part of what makes Amazon such an amazing company is that they laid the, they said, this is what people want. And they just said, we'll do whatever it takes to deliver what people, what people want. And they've been able to do that for 20 years. But that's because they laid the phone lines for cable and we have HTTP and we have all of the infrastructure. Without that, you don't have an internet anyways. I'm just I'm part of this is playing devil's advocate no, no, as well. No, no, but but the um, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, they invented the Amazon Web Service because the internet was broken for what they wanted to do. So I think that that the, some of the like some of the very very basics about the internet. Or the most important thing about the internet prior to Amazon was some of the principles. The actual technology and the infrastructure was terrible. I mean, I remember when I was a computer science major in the early 1990s. Perennially, there was just like, we're going to run out of IP addresses. You know, the, the internet, like, like, like literally every three months as the bandwidth and the amount was growing, computer scientists were talking about how there was no way they were going to be able to, and we're talking about going from like 50,000 web users to 200,000 web users and 
you know, millions of computers on the internet. Like that's the scope and the scale. It's very similar like what we're seeing now. Everybody was talking about it never broke. They just, you know, everybody, partially because all, when the problem got created, people rushed in and, and filled it. And then ultimately it even started to accelerate when Amazon came in and said, you know what, when your academics are doing it, that's fine. But pages need to load, like Google said, pages need to load in less than a tenth of a second. And nothing in the, in the original protocol had anything about that. Google led the effort to make sure that there were millions of websites that could load incredibly quickly. And they put infrastructure and technology, they, they, the commercial interests made that, made that possible. And the people who owned that problem were, you know, with, the, with big companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook. That's a very good point. So what type of companies are you guys focused on investing in? Specifically with the fund, and then also it sounds like you're going to be opening up a crypto side of a fund as well. Uh, again, I have to figure out how to, you know, what's the actionable way to do it. Right now, there are very, very few actionable ways. I think to well, the most actionable way to invest in crypto, which is what I've been doing personally, is to invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum and in the underlying crypto. It's like so hard to pick particular projects, and but again, if any of those succeed, the cryptocurrencies themselves are going to become more valuable. So, like you can. I mean, investing in early stage companies is incredibly hard and it's incredibly easy to buy cryptocurrencies. So like, you know, <laughs> you know, I made more money in cryptocurrencies than, you know, you know, at least in the short term than, than other things. So, you know, that's from practical perspective, that's, that's one, that's one answer. But to get a little bit, you know, into the, the Rostrum portfolio, it, it, you know, the idea is that these next generation platforms are transforming all industries. And so, you know, for example, you know, one, one company that I'm excited about is this company called Babyerge that does baby gear rentals. So millennials, when they travel, don't want to bring their car seat and their cribs. And so it's, a, it's like an Uber for that. And it fits really well into the sharing economy because, you know, uh, recent parents have, a, and then their kids are a little bit older and they have extra cribs and they can, they can take it and help get you set up when you, when you move in. It's growing 20% per month. It's basically, I mean, ultimately, I think with the sharing economy, it's like people are going to say, like, why do I even want to own a crib, period? I need it for two years. And then, and then I'm, and then, then I'm done with it. So, you know, I think that, and, and the millennials are just incredible adopter of, of the sharing economy. And so that, you know, that's an example of, you know, uh, of a, it's now like the old style digital platform of the Uber, you know, the, the Uber model. Ownership um, is much less valuable than opportunity to use. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And digital, like it used to, you know, a lot of the logistics are now easily managed through digital. Uh, platforms that prevented these kinds of things from happening. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to the syndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free. Right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, the syndicate.vc. Now let's get on with our podcast. So you've jumped into that. I want to jump a little bit back to your previous history. So you did your PhD on what looks to be persuasion, social citizenry. 
And it looks like you're very involved, or you were very involved in a lot of these causes. Talk a little yeah. bit more about that and what you learned. Oh, it's depressing. So I started off as a techno optimist. You know, as I said, I thought that uh, you know the digital technology could enhance and improve the way democracy works. And starting in 1998, actually dedicated myself full time for a few years on this to say the key is to create the alternative that people might want because they're for the first time they're adopting digital platforms. And so either people was uh, an experiment in democracy. And, you know, we ended up reaching tens of millions of voters and tens of thousands of candidates and partnered with media companies to provide voter guides. As a nonprofit, it was good. But in terms of the idea of, you know, sh- bending the arc of, of how democracy works, you know, I think it's largely a failure. I think that, you know, the rise of Trump is a good example of was the fear that we had 20 years ago, which was that, you know, you have you know, this micro-targeting, the ability to do activation persuasion, spin, just target one group of people and get that. And it's, it's happening on both sides. I mean, Trump is in power, so it's, it's easier to get upset about it. But, you know, everybody, you know, everybody is doing this and there's no accountability. The fake news epidemic is basically that people know that the best thing to do is to, to make money in media is to get people excited. And that doesn't mean getting to the truth and more importantly, having a common agenda. It used to be that if you were on the front page of the New York Times that forced you to deal with issues potentially framed in the ways that other people would want them. But now people just ignore what other people's framings of issues are, and they just stick to the one that's the most comfortable for themselves, and they're becoming incredibly disconnected. And so what I I learned was if you do a nonprofit that's nonpartisan, it's good for everybody, but nobody specifically, and it's incredibly difficult. I'm very proud of what we were able to do but it's been a little bit of a drop in the bucket, um, you know, in terms of, you know, where, where, where we're going. And I've been invited and I do try and help other groups that are, you know, with similar missions. And I, I just, I haven't seen, I haven't seen anything to, to combat it. Like it seems like it's going in a bad direction and, and I don't, I don't, I don't have any, any good ideas. I mean, the, the most important thing I think at this point is, you know, Zuckerberg and, and Jack and like whatever, the people who own the platforms, like, care about this they have more lovers than than other people but that even even if i were mark zuckerberg i don't have i don't have uh the per, i don't even have the thing to tell him to do with his his platform i mean because it's 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 really terrible yeah it's it's the overload of data combined with the advertising of that's a big part of the recent trump one as well is there was a company i can't remember the company it was in the early era of seo and they would just say horrible hateful things about people because of that, they would get sued. By getting sued, they get written about in the publications, New York Times, etc. These people are being sued, so they ranked page one, number one on Google, and sold a ton. It's the it's a very similar concept now that what's happening. Let me let me ask you a difficult question. Will is it an end all scenario? Is this something where there's no solution short of revolution up uproll up rising, etc.? Because the purpose of government is to increase the purpose of government, more more or less. Blockchain changes a lot of that. Just with your basis in understanding the industry, where do you see that specifically going for U.S. and then worldwide? Well, I hope not. Uh, I, you know, I think that uh, the democratic institutions are being tested. I mean, it really is almost like a conflict of technology on one hand and sort of basic democratic principles. I mean, the the potential good story is. Uh, I mean, I think you know, with I, I'm very upset by. Trump uh, threatening North Korea for nuclear war via Twitter. And I think this could be like a major point. I think it's almost certain that there's a tsunami of, of Democrats in the next election. 
and that that would lead to impeachment of Trump, you know, that they take a, a control of Congress. But I think, but Trump may be realizing this, plus whatever's going on with Mueller, and now he's trying to up the stakes by saying, we're going to pick a fight for World War III, we're going to get involved in India, Pakistan, we're going to move the, the embassy to Jerusalem, we're going to threaten the bomb North Korea. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, let's escalate the, the, the situation. If we're, you know, if we're losing the current domestic situation, let's, let's escalate. And I think that then puts the hands in the Republicans saying, well, maybe we want to get rid of Trump service purpose. We got our tax cuts. Now, if we jettison him, if we impeach him, get President Pence, we have a little time before the election that will reduce some of the anger from Democrats. And we can do things like pack the court and repeal healthcare, do, you know, things if you're a liberal are bad, but are at least sort of within bounds of like normal politics. And, and the, the whole point being that like, you know, maybe the technology institution, the, the, the civic institutions will be able to be resilient to this massive shock that, that we've had. And we'll have a couple of years with a divide government back to normal. Nothing, nothing really happens, you know, post 2018. You know, I think that that's a, in some sense, a reassuring thing. Like 75% of Americans would be like happy to take a little bit of a break from, from like all of the craziness that's, that's happened on both, you know, on, on both sides. I think there's a second one, you know, you're saying about technology and blockchain. I think, you know, you could have total collapse of Venezuela. And, you know, I was just in uh, Ecuador for, for Christmas and they had dollarization. They get rid of their currency and they, they had the political, uh, you know, the government decided to get rid of its own currency and adopt U.S. dollars. But what's interesting about like what's happening in Venezuela is that it could be the people or cryptocurrency, like nobody wants to have a local Venezuelan currency. They could just you know, the people could just abandon it and adopt Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or something like that. You know, it, you know, it, there could be a, you know, a non-government led Bitcoinization. And, you know, who knows where, you know, where, where, where that goes, you know, because it is, it is important to, to, and then, and then, so you've got all the little countries and, you know, there's some theories about how that could, you know, become a bunch of dominoes. That would be a major political force. And then there's also things like China and Russia. You know, an interesting theory that I heard is, you know, one of the biggest uh, global economic trends is the exchange of oil from Russia for Chinese goods. And both of those countries are incredibly infuriated that oil is uh, priced in dollars, which neither one of those companies, uh, countries cares about. And so another potential huge adopter of, of cryptocurrencies is just they just say, we're going to price oil in Bitcoin because we don't like why are we going in and out of US dollars if all we're doing is exchanging things bilaterally between you know, a huge amount of bilateral goods between Russia and and China. And I mean, I, 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 you know, all of these things are, are just, you know, are like crazy earth changing things that might happen before, you know, civil unrest or global war or, or, or other things, but, you know, might increase or decrease, you know, tensions. I, I, I don't know, but there's, you know, there are these these big potential scenarios that are out there. Let me ask a follow-up, two follow-ups to the first part of that. So inherently, the problem with the U.S. system is it's a winner-take-all system, which inherently means there can only be two because you vote for one or the other. The third guy's worthless. The third guy gets power. He partners with the second two to overtake the first one. But when you have a system where there can only be two, the only way for two things to not merge and become one is they need to become farther and farther apart, which is kind of what you're seeing now, Trump being kind of the breaking point. But if you look at, and sorry to jump into this, but I think a lot of tech people are generally smarter than most political people, and they're not often talking about this. So I want to get your opinion, especially considering your background. So yeah. because of the effectiveness of not just, not fake news, I don't think fake news is so much the problem as because people get upset by Trump, they read stories about Trump. And that incentivizes newspapers 
to promote those stories. The more eyeballs you get, the more it goes. It becomes a flywheel, thereby creating the situation in future elections where A, there's no reason to play nice, and B, you can say whatever you want to say, and C, the more controversial you are, the more exposure you'll get, and clearly the, the more success that merits. Has that broken the entire system just based off of our advertising industry? I think that's definitely a critical component. I mean, my my background, and I think this is not totally typical of the political establishment or the political you know, uh, academic thought, is that political communication is at the heart of you know the problem. And so I, I generally a lot of what you say I I, I accept. And I think you know, the micro targeting advertisements, the you know, that's always been the heart. You know, Bill Bradley said politics is the business of taking money from donors and giving it to media companies. And <laughs> so, you know, yes, definitely complicit, absolutely complicit. You, I think there was a political, there was a political science point embedded in what you said about the two-party system and the way elections work. I think that there's a there's an interesting oppositional point here. There, you have the political uh, economists who, you know, Downs, who said that if you have two ice cream sellers on a beach, where are they going to stand? They're going to stand right in the middle of the beach, back to back, because the idea is that people go to the closest vendor, if anyone moves away from the center, the other guy will move as close as possible, and then we'll capture all the people on the one side of the beach. And it applies to politics. The the, the political economy prediction is that candidates are going to both rush to become the median voter and and meet the median voter in the middle, because any position that deviates from the median voter leaves votes on the table for the opponent. Do you follow that logic? I follow, but hasn't that logic been completely disproven by the history of the U.S.? Well, so the question then is why? And yes, in fact, it's like one of these things. It's, one of the, it's, it's idolized as the most perfect political theory, and people love it, and they mathematical proofs out the wazoo, and then there's reality. <laughs> and so then you have, you know, the, the, you know, the version, uh, you know, the, the response has been behavioral economics. And, but I think if you go a little bit one step beyond that, you also then that in political communication, you have this idea that that's not the biggest problem. Like that's an idealized world where it ignores information costs. And what's happened is that the reason we've got two parties in the implication is that the parties have to signal for something and that voters, that, that they're using it when they go in the ballot box, all they can see is the name and the party identification. And that although the, the problem with being two median candidates is that there's no, no signal to tell a voter which way to go. And so you have candidates that are far apart and then now the, and then, and then the parties stand for something and the people, and then that become, you know, it's sort of like the, they're trading off, like they'd like to be able to capture the middle. But they also need to be able to tell voters how they're different so that they can get people to, to vote for them. And then even more importantly, that, you know, average people don't vote. It's excited people vote. And so, you know, now not that so there's no, you know, there's been a filtering and sorting and now there's been a rise of partisanship because nobody in the middle, the median voters don't vote. It's the rabid left and the rabid right. And it's all about just getting your guys as excited as, as possible. That that seems to be like like more consistent with what you see happening in the world as opposed to the the, you know, the, the median voter. Um, Not everyone wants ice cream, even though on the beach, everyone wants ice cream. So if everyone, if everyone votes, the theory works. If, if not everyone votes, then it's, it's a flawed theory. I like that. Also, I, I would argue that businessmen are much more logical and reasonable and probably would partner to move a third of the way from the center each and then share the profit. So they got a larger beach. But, um, interesting. I want to jump back into the investment side of things though, because politics is always a dirty little rat hole. So. <laughs> What, um, what startups are you excited about today or what themes specifically outside of cryptocurrencies? Oh man, it's like, I think Naval uh, Ravikant put it, it's like it's, uh, cryptocurrencies are, are like a, um, a virus, a brain virus. Like once it gets on your brain, it's really hard to, to think about, you know, anything, you know, anything else. So 
you know, I, I, I am like on the private side, I'm, I'm almost exclusively thinking about crypto, cryptocurrency a little bit. I dabble a little bit. You know, I think artificial intelligence is, is, is interesting, but I think it's going to be more of a sustaining than a, than a disruptive uh, technology. Uh, I, I made it my, one, my most recent new investment is an AI robotics company. A grad school friend of mine, who was the head of the AI group at Berkeley and then started OpenAI with Elon Musk, just took his team and formed a company to called Embodied Intelligence, which is doing manufacturing robots. So if you look at things like what goes on in, the, in an Amazon warehouse, you see that there's conveyor belts and there's the, you know, the little robots that move the stacks of goods around. But then there's one guy who sits in front of a computer screen and has to look at the things that are in the baskets, pick them up and move them over. Because picking and packing, it's identifying the objects. Some of them are squishy. Some of them are fragile. It's just easier to show a person a picture of what they have to pick and have them do it. So they, they, they're experts in visualization and moving things. And their premise is that robots are now capable of doing anything, but the bottleneck is training them to do stuff. And so they can make it they tasks that humans can do like that and then teach robots to, to do it instead. And I think that's going to have huge, you know, huge applications. And it's, it's just, it's just a terrific, you know, a terrific team. So that, you know, that's, that's the, um, that's one that I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about. And then, you know, I'm excited about all, you know, most of the companies in my, in my portfolio, although I think partially because of cryptocurrency, I think that we're in a time when it's a little bit of like belt tightening where, you know, we're looking at companies that are have really cool ideas that normally would have gotten, you know, really great follow on rounds to expand quickly. That money is not as easy to come by. So, you know, a lot of focusing on, okay, let's make money now. Let's grow organically. Like winter has come. Let's, let's make sure we can make it, make it through to the spring. A b- bunch of companies in those, in sort of that, in that category. And it's great to see, you know, them when they're like, okay, we were going to, de- we, we previously planned to defer revenue, but boom, now, you know, now we're, we're cash flow positive and we're, you know, we're not growing as fast as we'd hoped, but we're alive. And by the way, we're not the competitors aren't getting funded, so that's you know that's good. We have a little more breathing room in that respect. I like the capital definition of where money is going. So, two part question: What percentage of the money that's pouring into crypto, specifically ICOs, is from crypto whales who just wait, made way too much money investing early? And what percentage is from investors that are a FOMO? They're they're worried about missing out. You know, I'm at the center of this. I live in Greenwich. My friends, you know, run billion dollar private equity funds, hedge funds, you know, that kind of stuff, but don't know much about crypto. And I'm seeing them creep in and investing in these new funds that are popping up just because they don't want to miss out. And, you know, when we talk about crypto over drinks, they're like, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. You know, I should, I should put some, some shekels in, you know, to that. And I, and I actually even thought about starting a crypto fund to help people do that. But I, as I said, I don't, I think that's a bad idea. I think that your point about the whales is really, really important. I think that the vast majority of the money comes from whales. If you think about it from their perspective, let's say you made $100 million or a billion dollars in crypto from mining. It's not just free money. When you invest in the crypto projects, it's two things. First of all, those projects themselves might succeed. And the importance of having any of those projects succeeds is to protect the value of your investment, your, the major investment, which is your crypto holding. So if you have Bitcoin or Ethereum, you need these, these projects to succeed because to the, justify the valuation of the main holding that you have. So for them, it's a mix of greed and fear that they're investing in the ICOs. And I think they are by far the vast you know, majority of the funds that are being you know, invested in, in ICOs. If fear, why not just cash out? You can't, you can't, it moves the market. If you've got billions of dollars there, they may be slowly selling, but they don't want to, they don't want to crash 
none of the whales want to crash the market. And it's a supply and demand. I mean, if you fix supply, the price is is literally just a function of supply and demand. And so the oil cartel, they are the the whales are sort of uh, trying to gin demand, and then they're they're trying to have the price go up while they're selling, you know, some of what they do. But they can't they can't sell in mass. That would that would that would just crash the crash the market. Understood. Understood. I want to jump into the lightning round now. How's that sound, Michael? Great. What's the first deal you did? The first deal I did is a company called Viam. It, they're reinventing how drugs are discovered, being, you know, looking at mice trials for drugs, uh, for, uh, yeah, for drugs. And it's, uh, it's been a smash, a smash hit. It's very exciting. What are you terrified of today? Singularity. I like it. Two biggest wins to date, investment wise. The, uh, on paper, Viam is, it's the most developed. It, uh, so, uh, then also Ubeam that has a lot of potential. We're still waiting for a product <laughs> to, to, to come to market. So some, you know, some markups and then the, and the, and the sort of the acquisitions have been, have been okay, but not, not, you know, you know, uh, not, not in that sort of like 10 to 20. Another good one is knock. That's a, uh, reinventing how houses are sold. That's doing well, but it's early, early days, you know, sort of like 12 to 18 months into rostrum. I was writing a, a blog post earlier on crypto and looking into actually part of, part of what I was looking into was the, the largest implications of cryptocurrencies and Theoretically, if you do start to tokenize real estate, it's a great thing. Things are more transparent. Transactions happen easier. But when transactions happen easier, markets become more volatile, like the stock market, which could create strange challenges that no one really thinks about. Thoughts? I am uh, curious in real estate and blockchains, especially you know, people, basically these Russian oligarchs uh, park their money into these apartments and they're trading fish. Like the top floors, they don't live there. They don't go there. They just, they just want to get money out of Russia and have and, and so they buy a hundred million dollar apartment, and they're also the same people who are getting you know Bitcoin. So I, I think one of the most interesting things is going to be, and I saw one broker who is doing high end real estate that you buy and sell via Bitcoin or you know even cryptocurrencies. I think that's that's super <laughs> super interesting since that's they're, they're, it's an alternative way to park capital. Oh, I meant more in terms of tokenizing tokenizing real estate assets. Yeah, no, I, I've seen some some um, folks that are they're doing that. No, I think it could be I think that could be really. But yeah, could be could be interesting. Anti portfolio. Anybody awesome that you missed? No, I, I almost got squeezed out of embodied intelligence. I really had to work hard to get into that one. I I haven't had access to oh, well, I mean like in the early days, my first, my two biggest anti portfolios. One is uh, in college, I wrote an internet auction in nineteen ninety three and my professor Ed Felton gave me a B. I I mean I had a over a four average uh, at Princeton and said no one would use it and that and he ended up being the uh, CTO of the US. Really smart guy. I wish I hadn't listened to him. That would that that would be a good thing. And then I also I discovered both Yahoo and Google sort of within two weeks after they launched. Particularly Google, when I saw it, I said, "This is going to be the evil empire. I I need to oppose this." And it was total mess. I I should have you know I I met the third employee at Google and I should have joined. Like that was that's my biggest life uh, life regret right there. If you can't kill them, join them. What's um outside of cryptocurrencies? What field will dominate the next ten years and exits and IPOs? Yeah, that's, uh, I, I, you know, I think there's a great pipeline of, you know, the last generation of platforms, the Ubers, Airbnbs, I think they're, you know, they're, they're the ones that are, I don't know if that's the, the what, what you're looking for, like the, you know, the, you know, nothing that's new is going to go to IPO in the next three years, probably. Okay. So marketplace tech then. What, um, what podcasts, blogs, et cetera, do you look to on a daily, weekly basis to stay informed? Other than the syndicate, of course. Yes, 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 of course. I've just recently got into 
to podcasts. There's some there's some good blockchain ones. I you know I, I like I like the uh, Engine Horowitz uh, podcast. They're they're particularly good. I think that you know it, it's hard. I guess my major source is Twitter. So it's all about you know continuing to add good people on on Twitter. I, 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 I should give you some more specific stuff, but you know I like anything that Valver does. I think he's very smart in all the areas that I'm been interested in. But I also, you know, personally, my diet, I add a lot of developers, you know, people who are you know, actually not just the, the, the senior thought leaders, but a lot of the people who are more in the trenches. Like to me, the ability to add those, that layer of people into your Twitter diet is, is, is incredibly um, valuable. Absolutely. As long as you keep the bots out. What's overhyped today? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the crypto is both the most important thing and, and the most overhyped. So I guess it, it, it wins both. <laughs> Definitely. Long-term, huge, short-term, massively overhyped. Give me a, give me a productivity uh, hack. Let me give you one. Uh, I think the, the general stock market is now overheated. I think that's... Uh, oh, it, it all is. Real estate, everything's been going up for a little bit too long, a little bit too easily. Yeah. Yeah. So there might be... Uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, a lot of the stuff that Trump has done has been good for business, but it was also anticipated. So without a new trick, it'll be interesting to see. And uh, talking a little bit on my short fund, the stocks that we've been uh, identifying, there are at all-time highs. They are at the same price as when we started the fund. We've made 50% returns, despite the fact that overall, when you buy and hold, it's really easy. Prices tend to go up. When you're short, news, the news is always bad. But then in between news, it's like earnings, everything creeps up again. And it's, it's great for short fund because it's just like whack-a-mole. It's like you make money, and you take the bet off, and then it goes back up, and then you, you can make more money again. And rinse, you know, sort of rinse, rinse, lather, repeat. The game is going to end though. Eventually, you know, people will say, wait a second, like this, is, this has been really, really bad now. It's been four to eight quarters of just horrible, horrible news. Maybe, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe this, maybe it's crazy that for it to keep coming up. And so that's, that's one area that, that I look closely at. If you can do a several year short, I would be looking at Apple. I see a massive tumble coming, just quality, everything. They don't care about customers anymore. Give me a, a productivity hack or a morning routine that you love. I exercise. I like it. What do you do? Uh, I I have a mix. I've got uh, I I play on a soccer team and a basketball team, and I and I and I run. I live near a beach, and I've got a five mile loop that three miles of it are on on, on the beach. Are you a better basketball player or soccer player? Oh, that's I'm tall, so I guess I'll go with basketball. But I, like I, basketball. I love I love soccer. My soccer league is like a two hour pickup game, and so you're just totally exhausted by the end. Best game in the world. You need nothing but a ball. That's why it's the worldwide sport. Thanks for coming today, Michael. Where's the best place for people to check you out and say hey? Uh, Twitter. I'm at Weeks, W-E-I-K-S. Love to, love, love to hear from you. Uh, you can also find my email address, Mike at Weekster.com. Very, very open. So love to hear from your listeners. And of course, guys, we'll throw links and everything in the show notes, the syndicate.vc. If you haven't subscribed yet, you definitely should. I hear incredible things are coming. I'm not sure what those things are, but they're going to be incredible. We've got roundtables coming up on VR, AR. We've got another one coming up on robotics. We just did our consumer tech one with Tim O'Reilly. Well, I don't have much more to say at this point. I don't want to plug too much. So thanks for coming today, Mike. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Until next time, we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. 
Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.